This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Have you ever felt anxious, unsupported and lonely at work? Does that mean you have a mental health problem? What does mental health wellness mean exactly in the workplace? Should every bit of discomfort among workers count as an organisation's mental health issue? And do we want leaders to show their vulnerable whole selves? Welcome to Work Talk. I am Chris Boo. World Mental Health Day is over, but it doesn't mean feelings of dread or misery about jobs, bosses or colleagues have gone away. So, what do we do about it? In this episode, I invite you to walk with our panel of guests through some of the most intimate stories and uncomfortable questions we have around psychological and emotional well-being at workplaces. I'm delighted to introduce Heta Doshi, Lassen Ong and John Lim. Heta is an organisational psychologist and chief executive of OSAI. Larson is the co-founder of Vision Studio Singapore and a mental health advocate. John is a social worker and published author. To begin, I asked Heta what organisation psychologists do. We are the matchers of the psychological strategy to achieve the business strategy. A lot of times companies just think, here's the strategy, the business strategy, let's make sure that we get it. But there's no psychological strategy to be prepared and to figure out ways to be able to get there. In other words, also like going to war, we can't just say we want to win a war. Uh, We really need to have the psychological strategy. What is the difference between mental health and mental illness when we talk about mental well-being at workplaces? So typically in a lot of the Asian countries, whenever we talk about mental health, unfortunately, we're still talking about depression, anxiety, stress and suicide. Um, However, countries like, for example, Australia, Canada, European countries, whenever they talk about mental health, they're talking about well-being and they're talking about psychosocial risk, meaning what is the risk that people are put under. So I think the way that we measure it, the way that we define it needs to be very clear. Lassen, you have been an entrepreneur for over 20 years. And in recent years, you have done a lot of work raising awareness for mental well-being. Tell us why. You know that we spend almost 90,000 hours of our life at work. In that perspective, I think it's appropriate that support for our mental well-being starts from our workplaces. Actually, I was never big on mental health. To me, it was always something that I read about in the papers. It's always that something that happens to your cousin's boyfriend's colleague, to somebody you know but not so close, but you never think that it happened to yourself until I got depression in 2016. So that year was a tough year for me. Um, My dad got a double stroke. Then uh, my business partners and I, we went to a new business venture. And then, of course, relationship problems. And all of these just came all at the same time. And it just, I guess it tipped me over. And things got so bad that I would go into the office at 4 a.m. in the morning. And I'll leave by 8. I'll leave by 8 o'clock so that I didn't have to see anybody. 8 p.m. or 8 a.m.? 8 a.m., all the way in the morning. So I want to be the first one to come in and be the first one to get out. So, yeah, so that was an awful routine. And it took me six months before I sought uh, professional help. And looking back, I wish that somebody was around, you know, just to pull me along or just offer a simple, hey, how are you doing, you know, in, in those dark moments. So today I'm a mental health advocate and I'm always happy to share my journey from an alpha male's perspective and also a business owner's perspective. John, you've just launched a book called Take Heart. It talks about your own struggles and depression and how you manage it. You're also a social worker. How do you see the emotional and psychological state of our young people? Yeah, thanks. When we wrote the book, it was during Circuit Breaker. 
as a social worker, I was seeing many youths come to me with mental health concerns. And deep within, I was thinking through like two very big questions, like why were youths suffering more with mental distress despite having more resources and awareness around these issues? And I think secondly, and more importantly, why were we as a society getting lonelier despite having more and more technologies to connect us? And I think the two big ideas in the book were firstly that very often we talk about mental crisis. So the big things like suicidal ideation, depression, disorders, but we don't talk a lot about the emotional cuts and scrapes that we face in life. So rumination, rejection, failures, which can eventually fester into bigger wounds. And I think the second big idea was that Today, as a society, we've moved into focusing a lot on the experience. So how fancy the holidays are, what nice food we eat, and then broadcasting that to the world. But then we don't focus a lot on the intangible relationships between us. And this doesn't just look at the family relationships or the romantic ones, right? But also the friendships that we have between us. And so this, this book tries to cover these two big ideas. Congratulations on the book launch. One more question. You're 28. Is there a difference between how your generation view mental health compared to the older generations? I think the good thing about the younger generation is that we are keener to talk about it and there's less of a stigma. We've also been a lot more willing to talk about the emotions that underlie this mental health. The second more important thing is that today, it doesn't come out explicitly as, hey, I want to talk about my mental health today, but it's more like talking about the things that are difficult at work or in life. Like, let's say, oh, I just had a fight with my girlfriend today. Whereas in the past, I think we would have been a lot more tight-lipped and you know kept that stiff upper lip whenever we faced any problems and pretended that everything was fine. Do you agree, Lassen? I do. You know, uh, it's funny. I have something to add, a little story to add to John's. I started boxing in 2018, partially to take care of my mental well-being. And there was one episode where I was just lingering around the gym after the practice. We were just chit-chatting. And we were talking about, oh, you know, I have slipped this. How do you deal with your slip this? Oh, they were eager to suggest, oh, you should do this stretching. You should uh, do that before you exercise. And then um, somebody came up and said, hey, the, they, they said something like, you know, I have mental health condition. And suddenly everybody just went quiet. So that struck me like, you know, you could discuss a physical health problem quite easily and everybody could just chime in and give suggestions. But the taboo is still there where, you know, the moment you talk about mental health issue, everybody just, you know, I don't know what to say. And everybody just goes silent. Lassen, I remember that you talk about how companies are rolling back on the mental health programs that they launched during the pandemic. What led you to that conclusion? A couple of us decided last January that we want to work on a book to commemorate World Mental Health Day 2022. So the project, the book was titled Leaders Don't Cry. And we were hoping to humanize leaders by sharing 10 stories by Singapore leaders about their struggles with mental health. So we approached many corporates and SMEs for their support, um, both financially and otherwise. They were quick to offer donations. They were quick to make commitments to purchase the book. 
And of course, you know, the team was very encouraged. As we progressed, as the project continued, it coincided with the reopening of the economy. So I think in April or May, uh, restrictions were lifted, travel restrictions were also relaxed, and more people returned to the offices. Then we realized that, you know, people are starting to um, avoid us a little bit. We began to get blue tick on WhatsApp, and generally people just take longer and longer to reply to our emails. Hita, how well do you think companies are supporting their employees' emotional and mental well-being today? Generally, everybody wants to talk about it and everybody wants to do something about it. But the biggest problem is what is it? What is mental health and what is mental health support? And more importantly, what do employees want? I think the biggest struggle that CEOs have and they try to shy away from it is just tell me what you really want. So when we run these workshops, we try not to call it mental health workshops. We just call it a team recharge. So everybody goes in there and we just create a conducive environment and ask people what is it that they really, really want in order to perform their job in the best way possible. And it's very simple stuff that comes out from it. Um, Like, for example, can you stop calling me after five o'clock? Right. If you stop calling me after five o'clock, I'll be fine. Someone else, for example, could just say, you know, next time when you ask for us to stay back, could you please say please? It's very small stuff. So what we try to say is how do we keep this small? But the word mental health is so big and so confusing. And I think the way that we use it is just, uh, it just doesn't help us with clarity. Because the way that we talk about it sometimes just can make people feel a little bit like, oh, this is going to be a very heavy, scary potential topic and let it flow naturally from there. Has the pandemic changed the way that companies and workers look at mental wellness? Internationally, there is a new standard that was released in 2022 called ISO, or International Standard of uh, 45003, which is called psychosocial risk. So back in the day when companies used to look at risk or health, they used to look at it from a physical perspective. But the pandemic literally kicked off a standard. And because there is now an international standard that has measurements in place and very clear guidelines, now we can actually do something about it. And it is the responsibility of organizations to minimize the amount of drama or stress that they put on people. But it is always going to be the responsibility of individuals to take care of their own well-being. You wouldn't leave your money with someone. So why would you leave your... your mental and physical wealth with somebody, right? Or in the control of someone else. John, I need to ask you about the elephant in the room. So my generation, our parents might have gone through the war. They spent most of their lives as trying to live and feed their families. So when we, the older ones, look at young people, it seems like anything could warrant a meltdown. Like you said in your book, therapy is expensive. And yet, kids today expect their parents to pay for their therapies. So we feel young people today are too easily bruised, too delicate. How do you respond to that? Yeah, this is a big question. Are you softer than before? Especially when you look at the experiences of uh, Gen Xers. And I, I think there are two frames here. The first frame is to ask ourselves whether it's necessarily true that Older people are not affected just because they don't talk about it. And I think last year, the SOS figure f- uh, showed the largest increase amongst adults aged between 70 to 79, right? Which went up 60%. So I don't think mental distress distinguishes by age. And I think secondly, and more importantly, just because we don't talk about it doesn't actually mean it's not a problem. 
So if the Gen X was more willing to get on with it, doesn't mean that these suppressed emotions don't come out in different ways, such as uh, passive aggressiveness. And on the whole, I do think that it's really healthier that young people are turning towards help-seeking behavior rather than just stuffing it and moving on. And I don't necessarily think that they are softer for being willing to deal with the more intangible and unseen parts within us. Lassen, what do you think? Actually, I, I quite agree with what John just said. I mean, not seeing the problem doesn't mean that the problem doesn't exist. Do the older workers appreciate any support from the workplace or do they prefer to kind of keep it to themselves and be stoic about it? Um, I think they are awkward to talk about it. So, Heta, I've just given you an example of an older person looking at a younger person and saying, hey, this guy is not cut out to be a leader. He's too weak. There's still a lot of stigma attached to the lack of mental resilience. How do you help companies reconcile that? I love what John had said earlier, that maybe instead of mental health, we can call it an existential experience because that's really what it is. It's a journey about understanding life. But when we use mental health, again, it's very, it's too ambiguous. Like mental health to me is like literally setting goals. But if you get into stories and the truth about your journey, it connects everybody so easily. <laughs> so I think we should just tell our story and put in a disclaimer at the end of it that this is what I really intended out of sharing and what I'm hoping to have out of this relationship. Because as I'm sharing my story, it is a, what we call psychosocial. It is a relational storytelling. I'm telling you my story to relate better with you and I see versa. And I think 99%, I've never met one person who would say at the end of it, I think you're bullshitting. I don't like your story. You're full of, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I don't like, I have a stigma against it. It doesn't exist. When we use big words, we get lost. Lesson, when you came out and talked about your depression, your personal struggles, did that help you as a leader? I grew up in the 1980s, the 1960s, 1990s, with the very strong mentality that men must be strong. You know, we always hear the things that, you know, boys don't cry. If you bleed, you know, just laugh it off, don't cry. I'm the only son and playing a role of the only son, an alpha male and a business leader, it was suffocating to live up to the expectations that, you know, we must always be strong. We must always have the solution to everything. And sharing your vulnerabilities was something that, you know, you would never imagine. But I do see this attitude changing. And uh, many leaders have been coming forward to share their struggles. So I, I first shared my struggles openly in 2020 when I volunteered and I shared my lived experience with a group of strangers. I think it was 15 or 16 of them. And people just started to approach me uh, in person or over LinkedIn. And I think it makes you appear more human and more authentic. Have you ever thought that people could be just playing nice? Perhaps in their minds, they were discounting you as a leader, thinking you're not strong enough to be my leader. I think it's easy to dismiss, you know, certain comments that people give you as just lip service or it's just out of courtesy. Um, but if we work together in the same office, I think it takes a while to translate that into actions and you can genuinely see it after a while um, in, in a workshop. John, are you ever afraid of being judged? Or having a career affected because now you've come out and said, I have mental health struggles. 
you know, I, I remember that when I was a social worker, yeah, I was suffering through uh, depression. And so it was really ironic that, you know, I would be helping clients with their own mental distress. And on the other end, I was also like taking antidepressants myself. I think what really helped was the psychological safety of my relationship with my supervisor and being able to share uh, that, hey, I'm, I'm going through depression, I'm taking these antidepressants. Uh, and then she was extremely supportive to asking questions like, okay, so how, how might we support you in this? How might we help? But then again, not, not all organizations are as supportive as this. And I think it is a judgment that each individual has to take about their organization, their superiors' relationships, about how psychologically safe the environment is to accept uh, such differences. Hita, when bosses say they have emotional struggles like the rest of us, it's easy for some of us to say, you're not like us, you live in the big house and take home a fat paycheck. Do we really appreciate bosses that tell us there are low moments? Would you tell everybody how much money you have in your bank? Because mental health is that it's a very private and secret space. So I think the default should be you keep things to yourself. But when you decide that you want to share beyond your immediate circle, there must be a very, very powerful intent or activism to really promote the goodness in everybody else and to uplift the society at large, not just for the sake of because everybody's telling stories about, I don't know what I have to tell my story as well. I think it can be very well used potentially in your favor. It can be abused at any point in time as well. Um, I'll give you an example. One of uh, the CEOs that we work with, he um, shared a story about his upbringing and his very disastrous uh, childhood um, relationship with his father. But eventually, as the company was getting in a more and more difficult position, he ended up becoming quite aggressive and people started saying, see, he's behaving like his father. Which, when times are great, people will use your story well. When times are not great, they might use your story against you as well. There's this camp that believes that personal life should be kept separate. At work, I just want to see you deliver work. Let's keep it professional. <laughs> I love that. It sounds like forgive but don't forget. It sounds like uh, these typical words that I hear, let's be professional, don't get personal. Uh, but you are a person. You are a professional later. Everything that you are in your profession got personal. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it, right? So let's remove the idea that you can be two people over there. It affects everybody personally. So let's get human about it and let's get real about it. John, what do you think? I think often when you work, it's very easy to treat it as a transaction. Like you just clock in and then you like pull your money or your salary out at the end of each month uh, without realizing that, you know, the people that you deal with at the end of the day, they are humans and we have emotions and uh, we, we aren't just like little digits. Would being mentally strong make you more productive as well? Yeah, <laughs> this is something my, my therapist uh, always, always said to me uh, when, when I asked him, when am I going to get better? Like, how, how am I going to get back to work? Uh, and he said to me, John, you're very Singaporean, you know, always focused on money and productivity and work. Um, but I think sometimes uh, it's, it's realizing that, you know, without, without focusing on the you or others, um, that there can be no work. And ultimately, I think for, for purposeful and meaningful work to happen, you, you need to realize um, who the work is for and not just what the work is about. Here's a question from Larson for Hita. 
when you work with organizations, you always have one side, the leaders, the decision makers, and you've got one side, the employees, the people who want more versus the people who wants to keep more. What's the one big battle that you witness where you have to step in and say, hey, look, guys, let's sit down and let's have a good chat? Companies are quite clear that they want us to come in and help teams to grow. So um, typically then, because you want something and you want something, we decide what is the biggest thing, which is the butterfly. At the end of the day, we want performance, we want team dynamics, and we want people to be well. So often we will tell employers, it is your first responsibility to say yes to whatever it is that they want. Because you're making them do a lot of things every single day and making them go through a lot of drama every single day to achieve this big goal that you want. So if you want to achieve the big goal, say yes to them. So then they'll get upset, right? Like, oh, how can you tell us to just say yes? I'm like, just look at them in the eye and say, I trust that whatever you ask me will be reasonable enough and within my control. And I promise you it'll be a 90% chance that I will, I will do my best to say yes. And then they will ask for simple things like, can I get three more days leave? I think we should start saying a bit yes more to each other because we want to feel like we are winning in the company as well. Like I'm winning with you. Yeah, I hope I can say yes more. I got to say yes more. <laughs> oh, you look like you would. You look like your problem is saying no, Larson. <laughs> yeah, he's never said no to me and I ask for a lot of stuff. Give me one word that comes to mind when you think about what more can be done to support mental wellness. Friendships. Support. Breathing. Thank you for your company in this episode 23 of Work Talk a Straits Times podcast to help you work smarter, think deeper, and get ahead in your work life. I want to thank our wonderful panel, Hita Doshi, Lassen Ong, and John Lim. I'm Chris Bu. This podcast is produced by Tong Kai, Eden So, and the team led by Ernest Lewis. We wish you a good work week. I'd like to leave you with this last bit from John. This book, Take Heart, is available in the bookstores now. I used to think that um, being emotional, being sensitive was a really bad curse uh, until, you know, one evening as I was sharing this with my friend at Tampanese Bus Interchange, uh, he said this to me, John, sometimes I wish I could feel as deeply as you. And that was the first ever time that I realized that being emotionally sensitive is not always a curse, but a gift. And I think today, I don't always think Um, depression, mental distress, or even being emotional is a bad thing. I think it can be a strength that a harness in the right way can often bring us much good. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.